and welcome to the Fintech Marketing Podcast. I'm Maria Ferreira, your host and marketing director at 11FS. In today's episode, we're looking at how marketing evolves as you move from startup to scale-up. We'll chat about the best ways to focus your marketing efforts when you're smaller with limited resources, and how to scale your marketing effectively as you grow into a medium-sized business through to large corporate. How do you evolve the shape of your marketing team, your ways of working, and your brand story? But before we dive in, let's hear from our sponsor. Scaling up is a challenge for every fintech. Visa, the world's leader in digital payments, can help you power up your marketing using the strength of our brand. As a partner, you could get access to unique data and marketing assets, including the opportunity to leverage our iconic global sponsorship properties. Bring your big idea to life. Partner with Visa to do it bigger and faster. Visit visa.co.uk forward slash fintech. Now we're lucky to have some really interesting brands and guests with us today, so let me introduce you. First up, we have Sam Golden, Head of Marketing at Flock. Sam, how are you today? Hi there, Maria. I am very good, thank you. I've actually just come off hours of candidate interviews today, so it's pretty appropriate for what we're going to be talking about in the session. Fantastic. Sam, for those that don't know Flock, can you tell us a little bit about what you guys do? Yeah, so Flock in a nutshell, we're reinventing commercial vehicle insurance for the connected world. So that started off with commercial drone insurance, insuring things like the NHS's drone delivery trials. And we launched a connected motor product at the end of last year that is designed for commercial fleets of vehicles. So we connect to the telematics data, we combine that with stuff like real-time weather, and we price the insurance on a per-vehicle basis and per-trip basis. Oh, amazing. That sounds so interesting. So secondly, we have AJ Coyne, UK marketing lead at Klarna. AJ, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here today. Fantastic. Klarna, of course, needs no introduction, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about your role there. Yeah, for sure. So um, I joined Klarna about a year and a half ago now as head of marketing for the UK. So I'm responsible for the brand, uh, how we show up across our consumer marketing, but also B2B and our co-marketing. And, and right now, I'm very much focused on, I guess, challenging some misconceptions around the brand um, as we've scaled up. And have sort of we've seen some you know, tweets and Reddit threads become pop vernacular and how we can challenge those, but also how we bring to life our brand in, in, in a future regulated environment and, and prepare for that as well. So um, very busy. I'm actually at the office today for the first time in a while too, which is super strange and weird to meet people in real life for the first time. <laughs> that, that must be a bit of a mind shift. And it sounds like this is a super relevant discussion for where you guys are at this stage as well. And last, but by no means least, we have Emma Mayer, VP Marketing at TrueLayer. Emma, great to have you. Yeah, it's it's great to be here. I'm a long-time listener of the show, so thanks for having me. Fantastic. Um, Emma, what do you and your team get up to at TrueLayer? So I joined TrueLayer about one and a half years ago, and my focus has really been building out the marketing team and building out the strategy. So today we're a team of about 12 and counting, and we focus on driving revenue and driving brand growth. Fantastic. So you've all either worked in startups, you're in startups, you worked in scale-ups or uh, across all of these. So very relevant discussions. Let's dive in. I'd like to talk a little bit about how you make sure you keep your brand identity on track and how you evolve your brand identity as your company grows. This can be no mean feat, right? So if you're going through hyper growth and expanding rapidly, how do you stay true to your brand? 
Now, a go-to for many fintechs is to take aim at the big banks, right? To be provocative, even be controversial to get your brand noticed. I wonder if this is sustainable, though. And um, AJ, I'm going to throw this one uh, to you first. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, not to throw the question back at you to start, but I always think the question is, is it sustainable for the big banks to continue operating how they're operating, you know, with misaligned incentives and, and to a certain extent making money from consumers' misfortune? And I think as long as they're protected by by a moat um, that they are currently, there's always going to be room for brands and, and businesses and, and fintech startups to, to be provocative and to, to disrupt them. For us at Klarna, I think it's very much around engaging with our audience in a way that the big banks have failed to do. So we deliberately choose to look and feel very different from them. And that's something that hasn't changed um, as we've scaled up and as we've grown. I think our marketing here is, is very different because we opt and choose daily to, to not be like any other bank. Um, I think there's an element of, you know, we choose to engage on a very human level. And I think there for far too long, the big banks have operated with, you know, what, what was a trusted environment previously, you know, it was the, you go to the bank, the suit, but that sort of become a barrier and, and they're sort of hidden beyond, um, you know, the jargon, the T's and C's. And that's, I think, what's led to this, I guess, available area for, for, for disruption. A campaign that um, we've literally launched in, in, in the last weeks is very much, you know, even as a scale brand is talking to that point. One of our key lines is no thanks, old banks. Um, and we're sort of calling out, certainly from a UK perspective, that last year alone, the big banks earned £5.7 billion in interest fees and charges from consumers. Whereas, you know, Buy Now Pay Later as a whole has helped save UK consumers £76 million. So there's a question that we're starting to ask, you know, you know why pay interest? I, and, and I think that's a good example from, you know, Klarna, who are you know, operating in, in 19 markets globally with 19 million you know, customers, you know, we're, we're a scale brand and, and we're still going after or, you know, using the big banks as a, um, as a, as a point to be provocative because, you know, there's still so much wrong with them. Emma, Sam, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it's great to be controversial as long as you're telling the truth and you're actually bringing a genuine innovation to market. I totally agree with AJ. I think it's kind of close to home for me as well, because at Trulayer, we often talk about how open banking is going to displace cards as an online payment method. But we really believe that because it's a better customer experience. It's safer. It's more cost effective. So yeah, I think it can be a good thing. I think in terms of is it sustainable? I mean, it gets a bit boring if that's all you're doing. I think at some point you need to tap into what is happening in culture, what is happening in society, and kind of figure out ways to make your brand a part of that conversation as well. So yeah, that's my view on it. Completely agree with that. I think there's a difference between being provocative for the sake of it and instead just trying to practice honesty and truth. And I think that's something that in all the industries we've been working in hasn't been a core tenet of marketing. And now for the first time, actually honesty and truth. And just like, I love that campaign, AJ, you talk about and exposing what's happening. That's honest and truthful. And it's, it's a way of really getting attention. Is there ever a time when your brand has to sort of quote marks, grow up? I mean, is there a point where being provocative maybe doesn't fit with the point that you are as a, as a business? Or is it really just a matter of staying true? AJ? 
Yeah, it's a, I mean, there's definitely a maturity to when you do scale up. I don't necessarily think there's a, there's a time. I think there's a responsibility angle as you grow and get more consumers that as, as a business and as a brand, you need to be, you know, fair um, and, and not misleading. And it comes back to, I think that you know, both um, Emma and Sam just said, you know, truthful and, and, and honest and transparent. And I think that that should be part of any good business's DNA from day one. But certainly if it's not, then there is definitely a time when you have scale and customers that that is, is needed. So I don't think it's about so much growing up but more about being fair to the, to the size of the business that you are and, and, and never misleading. Um, and I think that if you can do that from day one, great. And you never have to grow up because you're mature from the start. Mm. I think linking back to what Emma was saying about it's, it's one of the tactics, but then also tapping into culture is, is so important as well. And there's so many different facets. And as you grow a team and as you expand as a company, you can obviously explore more of those avenues. I was just thinking about, uh, I think it's TransferWise did the Nothing to Hide campaign maybe a few years ago now. And that is great when you're a brand trying to get that out there to get the name out there. Um, but it might not be something they do now because I think their their objectives, especially now they're the wise brand, it's probably not in line with what they need to achieve anymore. So different tactics serve different kind of times of a, a business or, yeah. That's interesting because you often see that not only as a business grows, but maybe even when they go public, right? So suddenly you have shareholders and you've got people mm-hmm. that um, maybe have a slightly different view of the world of you know what a brand campaign and, and marketing looks like. Uh, and then you sort of uh, appeasing different audiences, right? So I think Wise is actually a, a really interesting example, Sam. And if it makes you feel as, as old as it makes me feel, <laughs> um, that was almost 10 years ago, that campaign. Uh, so Wow. Wow. <laughs> they, they, they've come a long way. Um, and, and, you know, I, I agree. I'm not sure they would be running that campaign today. But is there an element of they stuck to their story? Yeah, probably. And, and that's actually something I'm, I'd, I'd like your thoughts on. So how do you stay true to your brand story without just continuing to run through the streets naked? Yeah, I think your brand story and your brand is like the manifestation of what your company stands for and like what your values are. So I think if what you're putting out in the world starts to conflict with that, you need to kind of seriously take a deep look at at what you're doing and reevaluate things. But in terms of staying true to your brand story, I think it really depends what stage you're at. So a lot of my background is really early stage kind of B2B tech. And um, I actually think at that stage, you kind of need to get comfortable throwing your brand story in the bin quite a few times because your product's going to change, your strategy's going to change, maybe your customers will even change if you don't have product market fit. But what's really powerful and super useful is having a super clear purpose Mm. about how you want to make the world better and what your values are. And ideally, that doesn't change too much. And you can kind of have that as a North Star and, and try and stay true to that. Yeah, I love that because I think then it's a matter of um, adjusting how you execute or bring your purpose to life, right, as your company grows rather than trying to stick to one story and telling that over and over again. I think that makes complete sense. Any thoughts on that, AJ? Yeah, I think to echo what you said, purpose and, and what you're aspiring for is, is that connecting dot from, from B2B through to B2C and then into scale growth. For us at Klarna, I mean, we've been 
pink and smooth for, for for quite some time now and that's not going to change but what sits behind that and you know that that intention of, of smooth is that you know we want to be pink in a sea of blue because you know, we want to stand out but we also want to remove you know friction from from anywhere we see it and, and that's what smooth is but that does allow us probably some more opportunity to enter into new products as long as they're always delivering on that promise right which is removing friction providing a better outcome for for our customers then that's the connection dot um and i think from a what's been shifting and been really interesting and certainly for us in the last six months is actually you know how do we evolve that now to write the future of of better banking for us and what we want to see and actually how to smooth then apply to a, a new pink standard that we want to see you know, should actually interest exist anymore? We don't believe so on certainly the products that uh, we operate within and, and, and uh, you know, credit cards, which are comparable would be too. So, yeah, I think I, um, I slightly evolved the, the answer, but certainly removing friction and smooth is our brand story and, uh, and, and what we're staying true to. And I think that allows us to continue uh, on the trajectory that we have. I think pink and a sea of blue is exactly what we need. The other thing that I think about when, I think about how you evolve your brand as your business grows, or at least your brand story, is as your brand grows, the other consideration around your communication is to think about almost putting your money where your mouth is or less talk, more action, right? So we said at the beginning, there's a a tactic for, for a lot of startups will be sort of making claims, making statements, pointing the finger. But I feel like as you grow, there needs to be an element of showing what you're going to do, showing what you're going to deliver to actually bring some of your own claims to life or showing how you're going to do it better or different. Um, have you seen any of that, Emma? Yeah, I think it's definitely a great point. I think what we really lean into it at TrueLayer is letting our customers kind of tell those stories for us. So instead of us trying to be like, oh, like we're great at this, you know, we, we let our customers kind of talk about the innovation that they're bringing to market off the top of the platform and the benefits that they're realizing. And it's just so much more powerful than us trying to like talk about it ourselves and make those types of claims. So I found that to be like a really useful, useful thing. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. Now, as your company scales, hopefully, so does your marketing team. So let's talk a bit about the best shape for a marketing team as you grow, um, where your hiring focus should be um, and how the roles in your marketing team evolves. Now, marketing in a startup, uh, as you guys will know, is often a whole company game, right? Like everyone pitches in. The marketers that you do have tend to be generalists who can work across everything from events to Facebook ads to content. Emma, I'm going to throw this one to you first because I think it was in your previous role, you built your marketing team from scratch. So what should your first marketing hire be? Yeah, funnily enough, I've actually been the first marketing hire at basically every startup I've ever worked at. So yeah, I have some good good stories. I think what I should say is that it really depends on your strategy. But I think there's two hires that you should kind of just make straight off the bat because every time I've hired these two people, it's like 10x my output almost overnight. So the first person I recommend you hire is a designer. Because the more professional you look, the more serious people will take you. And there's nothing worse than when you're like the only marketing person in the company kind of staying up late, trying to lay out a PowerPoint slide and make a web page look professional. So I think hiring a designer is, is a must. 
And then I think hiring someone who understands content and SEO and who can write, because when you don't have budget to do like big splashy campaigns and you're super lean, you can get really, really far with a good content strategy. You can start showing up on Google for the right search terms and make it really easy for your customers to find you. So I think definitely from an early stage B2B perspective, those would always be my first two hires. That's so interesting. I, I must be honest, I wasn't expecting that to be your answer, that the design is the first hire, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sam, what do you think? I think that I need to pick Emma's brain because this is the journey that we're just starting on at Flock now is building out that marketing team. And it's it's something I've experienced from the agency side of things in terms of building teams inside agencies, but obviously the skill sets are very different. And as Emma said, that it really depends on the strategy. And that's what I've been trying to, with the team, nail to the wall over the last few months in terms of who will those first hires be? What are the skills that we don't have inside the company? And what's the best way to find them? So in some ways, we've brought external agencies on board to support with certain elements of, of what we're executing on. And now with some of those things, I think it might make sense to start bringing those skills in-house. So that's the challenge I'm tackling right now. Amazing. AJ, how do you evolve your marketing team structure as you grow? Because I mean, you guys are quite a, quite a big company now, right? So uh, I'm not sure how many people you have in your team, but let's say you start with a couple of generalists, maybe a designer if you're in Emma's team. How do you evolve that structure as you grow? Yeah, so we are, don't quote me, but I think at last call about 40 to 50 marketers in the UK. So we have grown quite exponentially. And then there is obviously you know, marketers all over the world. I actually really resonate with your, your comment, Emma, because I think still today, design and um, that great sort of content expertise are, are very much required on, on, on our side. We have scaled in, in um, a very, I guess, um, well-known operating model because I think Amazon used it as well as ourselves, um, whereby we focus uh, the teams around problem statements um, and, and key tasks. So uh, within our operating model, no, none of our marketing teams within that, that group of 50 are bigger than eight. They will be very much focused on a, on a certain topic or certain issue, problem statement, and, and, and being, you know, I guess, ignited around solving it. And, and they may move on to a next problem statement after time, but they're very much focused, move on. So it's, you know, hundreds or thousands, but never bigger than a team of eight. And then never focused on more than, I mean, ideally, five problem statements at any one time, but all rallying together around that. What does the structure of the eight look like, AJ? So it would depend on the challenge uh, or the problem statements that you're trying to solve. So um, right now, if you're focused on, uh, I guess, preparing a certain campaign that's talking to consumers, but maybe talking to regulators or government members, then you might have people that are made up from comms, public affairs and marketing. Or if it's around, you know, launching a new product in the app, then we're looking at maybe potential legal as well as copy and marketing and content. So the team will slightly shift depending on what that problem statement is. And even in co-marketing, um, so when we're partnering with our merchant or our retailer brands, we'll have commercial people involved in that in that team as well who understand the relationship with ASOS or Made.com and then can really bring that to, to, to life as well. That sounds so interesting. Emma, Sam, I'd actually love to hear about the shape of your marketing teams as well. So Emma, I'll come to you first. What's the shape of your marketing team and why have you structured it that way? Yeah, so I think once you know which activities are going to have the biggest impact, so you've done some initial experimenting and you know like which channels are working for you, you invest in them. 
And that's always been my approach and bringing in kind of senior specialists to like lead those squads as you scale and maybe they start out as an individual contributor and then within the year or within six months, depending on how fast you're growing, they kind of build out their own squad underneath them. So that's kind of how I approach it. At TrueLayer, we've built our marketing team in a way that enables us to move as quickly as possible. We're a very product-led business and we really believe in the value of great storytelling. So right at the heart of our marketing team is product marketing and content and creative. And then we have PR and growth marketing and global expansion, kind of amplifying those messages and making sure that we're talking to the right audiences at the right time. So we're like one marketing team, but five kind of smaller squads within that who are like specialists, but we work cross-functionally um, on whatever's most important at the time. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, what's the, the overall size of the team? So at the moment, we're 12. We're doing a lot of hiring this year. But yeah, so when I joined a year and a half ago, there was there was nobody doing marketing at Trulia. So it's been a really fun growth period. So amazing. These opportunities for sounds like marketers across various different disciplines at Trulia. Sam, and you're in hiring phase as well. So how are you structuring that? Yeah, so we're we're just kicking off hiring at the moment. The first two roles, although maybe I should question this after Emma's advice on hiring a designer, the first two roles we're hiring for uh, is someone to especially lead on campaign management and then on the other side, content. So I really resonate with what Emma was saying around storytelling and the power of content. Uh, but I also see a lot of value in someone who is specialized in distribution and channel management and understanding how to break down a piece of content and deliver it through multiple different channels. So we're going to be running those two teams in parallel, uh, a campaign management team managing all of the channels and a content management team who are responsible for creating all of the beautiful marketing material. Amazing. Um, I've got a last question before our break that I'll, I'll open up for anyone that's interested in, in grabbing it. But as a manager, um, I'm interested to know how you remain a practitioner. This is something that I always think about a lot because especially as your team grows, you do a lot more management, right? Um, I, I remember a, a tweet from Dan Rose talking about his time at Facebook with uh, Michelle Sandberg, where she always pushed them to always be doing real work, um, quote marks. So um, how do you manage that? How do you balance that? AJ? Yeah, from... I guess from from my perspective, there is sort of two ways in which I, we operate, and and one is very much what we would call accountable accountability, and the second is competent, which is sort of you know the, the practice of, of of the discipline, and 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 as such, I will have different conversations which are very much operational when I'm in that accountable role of delivery or the team productivity and delivering on KPI, but then when it comes to quality or marketing competence and I'll have a very much sort of one-on-one -on -one and separate conversation with the team on, on both their own development or that, that that output piece so is this delivering on five-star quality and good enough for, for Clara uh, what's missing etc and I try and sort of delineate the two conversations by how we operate and how we talk whether it's a daily stand-up for delivery and, 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 and output and then actually sort of a more considered reflect and, and planning for the more competence and practitioner discussion. Fantastic. I was just going to say, I think that's a really interesting question. And honestly, something that I, I struggle with a lot, because we're quite a small team. And we've grown really quickly. And I still spend like a lot of my time executing. 
But another thing that's really important to me is hiring really smart people and kind of getting out of their way and like letting them have a lot of autonomy to make decisions and kind of do the work. So I think it's about understanding where I can add the most value to the team and to the business and just being super clear about, you know, those things and making sure I carve out time in my week to focus on those things and then kind of just letting the team do their thing. I think creating time and space to like be a manager is really important. So I think I definitely try and separate my week between like, I'm going to be spending this time like coaching the team, having one-to-ones, kind of talking through their plans. And I'm going to spend this time executing on the projects that I have on my plate and just kind of creating a mental split, but also like a split in the calendar has been really helpful for me. That's exactly the way I approach it as well. Breaking down those two different kind of parts of the brain and blocking out specific time for execution in my calendar where I'm like, this is the time I am going to use to execute on this. And the same in terms of talking to the team or working with the leadership team, thinking about the context of those conversations and what you want to do within them is just really important. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, guys. We're just going to take a quick break here. We'll be back shortly. The first 11FS Foundry drop is here. We call it 11 Money. It shows non-banks, challengers, and established banks what we think is possible. It's our, here's one we made earlier version of a neobank and fintech deposit account that you can use as is or customize to shape your own product. 11Money lets you add fintech experiences to your offering and empowers your developers to customize and embed within any experience. With 11Money, you can build fintech experiences in weeks, not years, and you can request a demo today at 11fs.com forward slash foundry. Now let's talk about the processes and ways of working within marketing teams as you grow. Sam, I'd love to hear about your thoughts on any processes that you use to your advantage to help you speed up, not slow down. Yeah. So we've put together a concept called the editor's desk. And essentially it's a desk where all marketing material and communications has to go through. So if a team needs a copy review on some content or they've got a request for a change to the website, it all comes to the editor's desk. It can be prioritized in terms of what actually needs to happen now. And we have a ranking system for that. And then the things that are nice to have. And we work through those requests on the editor's desk to make sure the stuff that needs to happen actually gets processed immediately. And the rest of the stuff gets added to Asana, which we use for project management in terms of what we're going to be doing next. I love that. AJ, do you guys have an equivalent of an editor's desk? We do. I mean, we operate... um given where the size we are and the, the amount of markets, we have our internal platform, which is, is called Club, with a K for Klarna, which essentially I call is like our own sort of newsfeed slash like Mashable type type site where everything gets published and shared and every team has their own page that transparently shares their own KPIs, what they're working with, writes blog posts and updates weekly. It sort of allows us to sort of at any one point, you know, whoever we're talking to, to see what people are, are doing and the, and the progress that's being made from an operational side, that's very much like a display sort of piece. You can't comment and things on posts, but to, to, to drive operations, it's very much Slack. We're a Slack business where everything we do is on Slack. I, I feel like sometimes my brain is just a Slack notification waiting to happen. I'm like thinking of new products for Slack. I'm like, I don't work for Slack, but that's how many I am. And I actually really dislike that Slack now tell me how many messages I send on a weekly basis, which is a new feature. The only other thing from an, from an operating perspective, we do have team, like it's a bit more, it's online, but a bit more old school. We have sort of team review sessions and and, and some of us will sit on in different and various re- team review 
teams and stakeholders to sort of look for areas where we can have you know correlation so is there similar problem statements being worked on on two different teams and might be on totally different sides of the world or, or the business um, and how can we actually you know unite those um at the right time um it's really the other piece that i read from a scale perspective but um yeah i don't work for slack <laughs> thank you for just putting that out <laughs> disclaimer <there>. yeah disclaimer <laughs> It always felt like, well, at least when when we were all in offices together, when you when the as long as the business is under a hundred people, it's a very different environment, processes, ways of working. The minute you go over a hundred, get to sort of you know one hundred twenty, one hundred fifty, two hundred, like all your processes have to change, right? The way that you communicate, etc. For marketing specifically, I feel like. <laughs> and I've seen this a few times. The the danger is when your team starts to grow, you try to do five times the amount of work, even though your team is just double the size, right? So Emma, I wonder if you've found any ways that you effectively keep your team focused. Yeah, I think ruthless prioritization is key. Ultimately, at the end of the day, there has to be one main thing that's more important than everything else, whether it's like winning X customer or launching X product in X market successfully. And as the leader, it's like my job to figure out what that thing is and then tell my team, if you have to drop everything to move the needle here, do it. And I make a special effort (laughs) to prioritize and have those conversations regularly because if everything is important, nothing is important. So yes, ruthless prioritization. Amazing. One of the things that we talk about a lot is clear goals and KPIs as well, right? I'm sure you've all seen the quote, there's never enough time to do it right, but there's always enough time to do it over. So I think part of speeding up sometimes is just taking enough time at the start to figure out why you're doing this, what are the goals, and what is the plan. I think that ultimately helps you move faster. So there's definitely, at least in my book, something to be said for getting it right up front and thinking about the the objectives, the goals, which sometimes might feel like you're slowing down the process, but I I truly believe that ultimately that helps you speed up. Yeah, I, I think that's completely true. And actually one of the processes that I think we've gotten really good at in my team is creating really great briefs and project kickoffs, making sure everyone is super clear and aligned on the strategy and the goals right from the start and having it documented, having the kickoff meeting, because it actually saves so much time. Like everyone knows what they're doing. No, like people make less mistakes. It's just a a no-brainer. Sam, anything to add to that? I just completely agree. Slowing down to speed up. I just think it's so important to actually just take stock of where you're at, understand what you need to achieve, and then start laying out a plan before just running at it without a real focus because it always ends up with you having to do over. Fantastic. So... Before we wrap up, as I mentioned before, I'd love to give marketers listening some actionable advice, whether these are marketers in teams, in scale-ups or startups for that matter, or whether it's marketers leading teams in scale-ups or startups. I'd love to go around and get some of your actionable tips, things that you've learned. What can you share, Emma? So I have two right at the top of my head. So the first thing is build playbooks. If something is working really well and it's repeatable, try and productize it and rinse and repeat until you see diminishing returns. That is one piece of advice. The second piece of advice would be don't build sandcastles. So don't build things that can only be used once. 
Um, try and think about how you can do things that you can use multiple times across multiple touch points. So for example, if you're writing a blog post, how are you going to use that on social? How are you going to use that in your nurture campaigns? How does that tie into other conversations that you're having with prospects and audiences? So those would be my two pieces of advice. I love that. No sandcastles will definitely be vocabulary that we start using at LMNFS. AJ? Yeah, I think um, it's a similar point to, to the second one Emma just made, but I think distribution is key and maximizing eyeballs and awareness on the great content that any market team is you know, creating on a daily basis is so fundamental. I love your point there on, you know, I think we get bored by our own work a lot quicker than consumers do. And actually, uh, we're very quick to, to move on. And there's a real nuance in actually staying true and, and actually um, maximizing things that are working. The last one, and I think this is probably more to, I guess, people that are starting out or that people that maybe are, you know, it's not leading a team, but it's, yes, always have a point of view and always, I guess, uh, ask, I'd say, for forgiveness versus permission always, because I think that there's an element of you can always talk yourself out of doing something, but getting stuff done, I was about to swear, um, is far more important and, um, and, and and showing that you have an opinion and a point of view and you are capable than sort of waiting for someone to say, yes, it's okay, because nine times out of 10, the gut instincts and, and, and strategic thinking will be right. Love that. Sam? Yeah, so as, as someone who's just starting out in building a team at Flock, I think the big piece of advice I'd give to past me would be make room for hiring. I'm blocking out about 30, 40% of my calendar some weeks just to do interviews, speak with exciting candidates for the roles we're building now, but also for the roles that we're starting to build out for the future. And the other thing, when you're going through that phase of starting to hire a team, but not having them on board, make the most of what you've got at that moment. So leverage your sales team. I think now more than ever, the people inside your business are your biggest ambassadors. And if they're out there on social media, engaging with people, sharing relevant news, sharing the content you're creating with their own networks so they amplify it, just making the most of who you've got until you have that full-time marketing team on board is something that I've really been trying to pull on over the last few months. Fantastic. A couple of ones from me that I've learned, uh, at least during my time at 11FS, that I'll, I'll throw in there as well. I think a lot about speed with purpose. So I, I think anyone that's worked in a startup um, has experienced the nature of having to work quickly and move at speed and the importance of it. But speed with purpose for me is so important because it's the element of learning as you're doing. So AJ, 100%, get stuff done, but don't just do stuff, actually learn from it. Uh, and again, maybe that's going back to our point of taking a minute, m making the plan, deciding why you're doing it, and then executing quickly, but make sure that you learn. And then to Emma's point, don't build sandcastles, learn from it, you know, use it again, iterate on it. So that's been, been a big one for me. And then we use, similar to some of the learnings that you guys take from Amazon, AJ, we use Amazon's decision make two-way door decision-making process of just making decisions quickly. And I suppose, again, that ties into speed, but really, you know, if it's if this thing is reversible, just make the decision quickly and move on. If it's something that can't be reversed, take a minute and try to make the right decision, but making decisions quickly just cannot be underestimated. Any final thoughts to add to that? The only one that's probably more relevant for, for me is it's not always 
going to be smooth, no pun intended, sailing. And if there are difficult topics, don't shy away. Lean in, be transparent, and, 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 and make sure that you're in the conversation versus letting the conversation happen around you. Fantastic. So that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. I'd love the listeners to know where they can find out more about you. AJ? Klarna.com um, or follow us on Instagram, Klarna.uk. And you personally? So uh, shamefully, shamefully, my Twitter handle was designed long, long, long time ago. And it's just underscore coin underscore it. Tragic. Sorry. Um, uh, so that's the, uh, the Twitter handle. Fantastic. Emma? I don't have a Twitter handle quite that exciting or memorable, but you can find me at EG Mayer on Twitter. And for all of your open banking needs, you can head to truelayer.com. Fantastic. Sam? I have an equally embarrassing Twitter handle as AJ, maybe, um, at Golden Gatsby on Twitter. And you can check out Flock on flockcover.com. Fantastic. And you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Mariette F-E-R. And of course, for all things 11FS, we're at 11FS.com. So thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Marketing Podcast or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much. And goodbye.